America has 2.2 million people in prison. If just 1% is wrong, that's 22,000 people. That's a lot of people's lives destroyed. If the system want to take you out of society, they will do it. No matter what laws they have to break, saying that they are enforcing the laws, but they're breaking the law. Having to hear those people say that I was guilty of a crime that I did not commit, and then hear my family break down behind me and not be able to do anything about it, I can't describe the crushing weight that was. I'm not anti-police, I'm just anti-corruption. A lot of times we look and we see something happen to somebody and that's the first thing we say, that could never happen to me, but it can. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's guest is an extraordinary person who has been through something that nobody should ever go through. Leroy Harris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. There's so many crazy aspects of your case, but I think we should probably start at the beginning. First of all, where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And how was that? Did you have a nice family situation? I mean, was it a tough childhood? Well, no, we had a, um, a close-knit family. I mean, we was very supportive of each other. and Brothers, sisters? Yeah, brothers. My mother, she was a single parent. She raised 14 children. Huh? Yeah, my mother had seven <laughs> sons and seven daughters. Wow, that's amazing. It's like and, uh, you know, my father, he, well, at the time, he worked as a truck driver, so he was in and out. But, you know, he was supportive of the family, too. But he just, a lot of times, he just couldn't really provide as much as he wanted to because the family was so big. How big was your apartment that you lived in? Well, we lived a in a house. You know, we went from East New York to Flatbush, and at that time in Flatbush, you know, it was a lot of different families, different nationalities coming in. And so it was pretty integrated. It was a good community that I lived in. And, you know, so the, the family, just growing up, it was it was... It was a good, wholesome family. Were you the oldest, youngest, Well, middle? I was one of the middles. Before this criminal justice nightmare hit you like a ton of bricks, did you have, which you were 22 years old at the yes, time, Yes, I right? was, yes. Before that, did you have any interaction with the justice system? No, I, I, I didn't really have no encounters with the police. Uh, you know, I wasn't a bad kid. And if you consider, you know, a little bit of every now and then, you know, growing up a little beer or something. You know, as a kid, you know, growing up younger, 21, 22, I may took a drink here and there or, you know. Okay, but, so you were a regular kid. Yeah, that's it. That's I mean, it. I was a regular kid. I mean, not, nothing other than that. A little beer here and there, that was it, you know. So this part of the story starts in 1983. Yeah, just... A long time ago. Yeah. I mean, that's like... I'm trying to think back of, I mean, like when I watch the movie of my life backwards, if I think about the last 35 years and thinking about you spending it incarcerated, it, it really is, um, that's mm. just, it's an enormous amount of time. Yes, um, it is. And, and none of it ever made any sense. You were originally picked up on a warrant 
1984, and I knew nothing about it. And this was in Connecticut? In Connecticut, in New Haven. So they pick you up on a warrant. Now, most people are probably saying, okay, so what was the warrant for? And you didn't know. Well, like I said, I'm from Brooklyn. My mother, she lived in New Haven at this time. So I'm out of town. They pick me up and lock me up. And that's all I know at that point. I'm waiting to see a judge, you know, get to court. I'm locked up four months. I finally come to court September 18th, 84, and I'm asking them, where's the lawyer? Can you call my lawyer down? So you have not, at this point, ever even met your lawyer yet? Nobody. So you don't have a lawyer? I don't have any, but I know I'm coming to court, so they have to have the public defender's office have somebody come down to see me before I go up to see the judge. But so what, I'm asking, where's the lawyer? Because I know you, you have to get a lawyer. I don't have no money. But the logical thinking mind is going to say, but wait a minute, you must have seen a lawyer while you were in jail. For Everyone's entitled to a lawyer. It says that in the Constitution. How were they keeping you in jail for four months and you didn't even know what was going on and you didn't see a lawyer? Well, they, well you know, sometimes people do what they want to do. I mean, just because a person is a, a prosecutor or a person is a police officer, it doesn't mean that they are following the letter of the law. So we need to make that clear, because if they were following the letter of the law, I would have seen a lawyer day one when they arrested me. And then most likely none of this ever would have happened because you would have been able to prove that whatever it was that they were charging you with, they had the wrong guy. Right. Now you can't see him, but Leroy is a very dapper dresser. He's all decked out today. And that's actually an important point because Mm -hmm. it plays a role in the next part of the story, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you show up in court Mm -hmm. dressed to kill. Yes. No pun intended. And what happens next? Well, they called me to court that day. I get to the courthouse. I'm down in the lockup. I'm asking the sheriff, where's the lawyer? Can I see a lawyer? Who's my lawyer? He goes upstairs to the public defender's office. We got Leroy Harris downstairs. He's asking who is his lawyer, this, that, and he comes back down maybe 25 minutes later and says, I don't know. Then the doorbell to the lockup gets the buzz that someone comes in. He says, "Uh, Mr. Harris, he says, they're here for you now. I said, they're here for me now? What do you mean? He says, "Uh, there's a cop, Officer Lemon. He wants to speak to you. The officer said, asking me, are you Leroy Harris? I says, yes, I am. He says, is your date of birth 10-25-60? I says, yes, it is. And he says, well, turn around, you're under arrest. I said, for what? He said, for robbery and sexual assault. He says, this happened May 21st, 1983. Now, this is another warrant. So they take me from the lockup to One Union Avenue, which is the police headquarters, process me and put me in a van, bring me back to another court for arraignment for this new warrant. So when I get to the court, I'm sitting there waiting to be arraigned, and pandemonium erupted in the courthouse. And one of the sheriffs ran over and said, hey, come on, get out of here. And I didn't ask any questions. I got up and I walked out. So wait, when you say pandemonium erupted, what do you mean? It was a lot of excitement in the courthouse. Uh, People were yelling over here. So he was just trying to clear everything out. 
and he told me, hey, get up. And because the way I looked, he didn't think that I was a prisoner. Did he think you were a lawyer? I guess he did, because that was inside the transcripts. He said, well, he did the clothes he was wearing, the suit, the, the way he looked. Look at the pictures. No one knew, you know, that was Leroy. I mean, you do look more like a lawyer or a college professor than somebody who's been in prison, for yeah. th- even now. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is something that's just totally surreal. Like, here you are with two warrants. One of you still don't know what it is. The other one, you don't know what the hell they're talking about, right? right? You know what it is, but it doesn't make any sense to you. You walk out of the courtroom into the fresh air. Yes. Because they told you to. They told me, go ahead, get out of here. Which which sounds like, it all sounds so crazy, right? So you walk out and then what happens? Well, I walked out and I, I got on the train and I went home to Brooklyn. And I was in Brooklyn for maybe a year and a half before I was picked up and brought back to New Haven, and they charged me with escape from custody. Now I got an escape from custody, and I got three cases. I don't really, didn't really have nothing from the beginning. I didn't know what was going on. And they take me to trial in 86, November 20th, 1986. They take me to trial for escape. And by the way, this is the most elegant escape I've ever heard of, right? They actually told you to walk out. So this is the most peaceful escape in the history of escapes. Just like, off you go. Like, take a walk. See you later. Get on the train. Go home. Thank you very much. Okay, so now they're charging you with escape. Mm -hmm. The previous warrant, they still didn't tell you what it is. I later found out it was larceny in the second degree. Okay, larceny in the second degree. Okay, so another thing. So they brought you to trial, and they charged you with all three crimes? Just escape. That's later. We're talking about 86 right now. Yeah. So they charged me with escape. So now they convict me. Now you had a lawyer, right? Well, yeah, I had a lawyer, but it wasn't, sometimes you say bootleg, and I think that's what this was. This was the bootleg of fleet markets, you know, the fleet market lawyer. He wasn't in my best interest at all. What was going on, I guess, like I said, if the system wanted to take you out of society, for whatever reason, they will do it. No matter what laws they have to break, saying that they are enforcing the laws, but they are breaking the laws. Because it would seem like a relatively simple argument for a lawyer to make to say, well, the sheriff told my client to leave and he left. Doesn't seem to meet the definition of escape. Well, they, well, but they, that, he didn't even bother to mount that argument? No, they charged me with escape from custody. And so this is the part where I did escape. Right, because there's a real escape. Yeah, this is the escape. Now, this is the escape. Once they did that, once they did that from walking out, and they told me to walk out, that day, November 20th, 1986, the prosecutor said to me, now, you're convicted. What I'm going to do, I'm going to have you charged as a serious, persistent, felony offender. I had no cases. I had no charges. I had no felonies except the escape that you just convicted me on. He says, I'm going to charge you as a serious, persistent felony offender, and you're going downstairs in the lockup. And this was before one o'clock that day I was convicted. And at two o'clock, you're coming back upstairs, and we're going to pick another jury. And all that jury has to do 
just say that you're guilty as a persistent felony offender and the sheriff right here that was in the courtroom during the trial, he's a witness. And the stenographer that's sitting right there, she's a witness that you just was convicted and you got another felony. They're going to testify to that. And if the jury sees that, they can double up and give you, instead of 10 years for walking out for the escape, 20. That's when I escaped. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. And then how did you escape this time? Because this is, it's really amazing too because I'm sitting here thinking, well, if they're going to charge me with an escape, I'm going to show them what an escape looks and like. And that's what I did. And that day, when I went downstairs, I left. But how'd you? And but you I, can't I mean, just leave. Just, how'd you leave? I went through. I went. I just went through the control room. I opened up the door. I walked out the fence. I walked up the the, the driveway. I walked on to the New Haven Green, and I, I I sat there for a minute. Took off my suit. And I had my shorts on and that because I was on trial, so I had I was dapper. I had a dress suit on, and I had gym shorts underneath that. So I just took that off, took my suit over, left it, threw it in the garbage, and I just walked down to Elm Street, and I seen somebody with a car, and they gave me a ride to the train station, and I got on the train, and I went back to Brooklyn. And when I got back in Brooklyn, I was... Again, charged with escape from custody until I was picked up on March 15th, 1988. Now, that's where this comes in at. So March 15th, 1988. Now, wow. And here we are in 2018. It's not hard to do the math on that one. Mm -hmm. And then you never saw daylight again from that point until 2017. Until, right, until November 21st. 
2017, that was when I seen freedom as I known it to be. So, and it's so recent too, it's really, uh, I'm just sort of processing this right now. Um, you eventually ended up getting picked up this now third time charged with an escape that was an actual escape. And it's interesting listening to you talk about it because you make it sound like it was so easy, but it couldn't have been that easy. I mean, they don't make it easy. I was just furious. I was just furious because I'm furious. I mean, what they did, what they did, I was just so furious. I I just left. Yeah, you left. But I mean, again, like it doesn't, people can't just leave. I mean, you you had to put some, I don't know how you did it. It's still that, it's still sort of a mystery to me. I'm trying to picture the different doors and walls and things, but you got out. Yeah. So now here it is. 1988, you're back in custody, and this time they're going to try you for this sexual assault and robbery that you know nothing about. And now you have another public defender. Mm-hmm. And was this guy any better than the other guy? No, this wasn't a him. This was a her, Patricia Buck Wolf. She was an advocate for battered women, for women of sexual assault, for sheltered women, and women in crisis, and everything else. So I didn't have no defense at all. I just sat there during the whole trial, and the state put on their case. It was my 520 pages in the transcript, and nothing with me. So she was, uh, so from the picture that you're painting, it sounds like she didn't have a lot of interest in None defending at all. you this because was she was looking at it like, if they're charging you, you must be guilty, and she wants to take the side of the, of the woman. And it was a it was a terrible case, and, yeah, and nobody was. nobody would you know would ever want this to happen to anybody. Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean that you don't deserve a fair trial, and it doesn't mean that we should convict the wrong guy, which is mm-hmm. exactly what happened, and is what mm-hmm. happens too frequently in this country. Mm-hmm. And people, I think, would expect that there would be a system of justice that wouldn't totally break down in the way that it did in your case over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's not like. There was one time, and I mean, like you had multiple opportunities for the justice system to work in your favor as just a regular law-abiding citizen deserves and, and would expect. Mm-hmm. And every single time, it almost got worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, here they basically sounds like, and I don't know whether they did it on purpose, but they probably stuck you with a lawyer that was the least likely one to want to really mount an aggressive defense mm-hmm. for you in this case. How long did the trial take? Well, the trial went from the 4th to the the 10th, the 11th. The next day, they sentenced me 9 o'clock in the morning. But I didn't find out about Patricia Buck Wolf until 2008. It was a prejudice did because of the case and what she represented. And I didn't know that. I found that out years later. Almost 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. I found that out. And you know what's ironic about that, Leroy, is that you can't escape the fact that in doing what she did, which was not defending you and not getting to the truth, what she actually did is allow the actual perpetrator to remain free Mm -hmm. to abuse more women. Yeah, she broke the law. Well, she broke the law, but also if her goal, which we can agree with, which is to help battered women and and to be an advocate for women who are Mm -hmm. suffering and abused, if that was her goal, she actually accomplished the opposite thing. Right. Because not only did she do a grave injustice to you, but also any other woman that the actual perpetrator went and, and abused, those women 
would never have been victimized if the system would have worked and if she and the other people would have done their job and they would have actually figured out that you were innocent and gone and found the guy who's a bad guy and should be off the streets and should be in prison. So she actually did a terrible disservice to women Mm -hmm. by using this twisted logic that she had in just disregarding your guilt or innocence Mm -hmm. and throwing you to the... To, well, throwing you to the wolves, right? Yeah, Her name was the, Wolf. She yeah, threw you to the, the wolves. Lamb. You end up getting sentenced to... 80 years. 80 years in prison. I mean, how did you even manage to deal with that? You've already been wrongfully arrested multiple times, charged wrongly multiple times, in and out of prison, escapes. You've already had like a, a nightmarish journey, and now comes the ultimate which is an 80-year sentence. I mean, you had at this point, you had a wife and a child Mm -hmm. and a life that you were supposed to be living. Absolutely. And you're being pulled away from all of that Uh, and basically sentenced to die in prison. You weren't going to live another 80 years. No, I wasn't, but I knew that I had to fight this April 11th, 1989. They gave me an 80-year sentence. And I said from that day, I got to fight him. And, and let's go back for a second, Leroy, and talk about this case, because this was a terrible crime, right? There were three guys who stole a car and some money from somebody. And then there were two young ladies yes, in the car sued. who ended up sued, in a terrible twist of fate. They ended up making a wrong turn, getting stuck on a dead end, and then running basically into a more or less a roadblock that these guys who had just stolen this other car mm-hmm were able to sort of box them in. And so they were sexually assaulted mm-hmm. and robbed. They knew they had three perpetrators, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they had two of them. They had caught two of them. Was that right? No, they had a whole lot of suspects. James Pookie, Roundtree, Smith, Shepard, Blingo. They had a whole lot of people that they thought that was a potential suspect. That never came out because they wanted, I guess, to punish me. And so I was punished for that. And today, as I said before you, I have proven that November 21st, even prior to that, that it wasn't me. And everything that they knew all of them years, it was because of a a prosecutor named James Clark. He was being vindictive. He was mad because I left the first time. And then after they tried to get double up and give me 20 years for walking out the door. He was mad about that. That's when I escaped, and they gave me the 10 years in absentia. When they brought me back in custody, I was sentenced to 10 years. So he did that while I was on the run. And so he it was just being vengeful. He just wanted to hurt me, just to hurt me. You know, because I left and showing me that he got the power. I got the power, so I'm going to take your life. I don't care. I'm going to take it. And that's what he did. Even though he knew and all the evidence at the time from day one showed that I had nothing to do with it, that I wasn't there. You know, I wasn't even supposed to have been a suspect. He knew that from day one. He knew that from 83. And all the documentation shows that clearly, all the evidence. But he took me to trial in 89 and had me suffer for 29 years. 
thinking that I would die in prison because this conversation around the water fountain was he'll be catching up the Manson when he get out. He'll be doing this. He'll be doing that for nothing. So this was a vicious person. Yeah, it's, um, it's really hard to figure out how people can go so far wrong that they can just sentence somebody like you to spend the rest of their life in prison and then go home and have a nice dinner, go sleep, you know, just go on with their lives like nothing happened. But there's, unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there like that. There are, there are good people in the justice system, and I always say that, and, and we need a justice system, and we need... When you're in trouble, you need to be able to call somebody. You need to be able to call a cop. Absolutely. You know? And no, we need absolutely. prosecutors and we need judges. But there are just too damn many of these people like this guy who have no conscience and have no— and And really have no interest in justice at all because, again, and I make this point over and over again, when they lock up the wrong guy, they don't lock up the right guy. And that guy's free to go out and terrorize the community. And in your case, it was proven with DNA— that you were innocent, but they also had other evidence. Yeah. They knew that the witnesses had said that they didn't know you. That the, the, Everybody. The, I mean, there was nobody that placed you at the scene of the crime. There was even, nobody that even knew who you were. Even the victims told them that. In September 27, 1983, when they, they arrested me, the 18th, 1984, the documentation that I have that says that when they asked the victims, is this the guy? They said no. Right, case He had closed. nothing to do with it. But in 89, everybody comes parading in there because of clock. Do you see the man? Do you know Leroy Harris? No. From the witness there. Do you see the man in the courtroom? There he is. Let the record reflect that the victim just made an identification of the defendant. Okay, you may step down. Come on, next witness. Do you know Leroy Harris? No. You ever seen him before? No. Uh, tell us what happened. Uh, do you see the person in court? Let the record reflect that the victim just made an identification of the defendant. Okay, step down. Call the next person. And we know now that the Supreme Court of Connecticut has outlawed those type of practices, right? Absolutely. So under today's rules, they would not have been able to do that because obviously that's a suggestive identification technique. And Absolutely. it's been in use for a long time. But luckily now, no one else will be able to be mm -hmm. um, wrongfully identified as you were in that courtroom that day using those same tactics. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone, and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, 
introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing, they're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. And why do you think that those witnesses changed their story six years later? Well, I think that Clark told them that because they said it in the habeas trial that um, we came to court because you come to court to identify a person. And Clark told them it was me. He's the prosecutor. This all documented. He put them in the room on the side and said that, look in there. That's him right there. Hmm. It's all documented. And by the way, we also know and so many different studies have shown how memory works, right? First of all, you look different six years later. Everybody looks different six years later. The memory of, of, some, of an event that happened six years earlier is going to be foggy at best, right? People can't even make a, a correct identification, you know, a day later in most cases, in many cases, right? In your case, here it is all these years later, and these suggestive techniques, borderline coercive techniques that were used, could cause a person to either, who knows whether they knew at the time that they were actually identifying an innocent person and maybe they were threatened if they didn't do that. Well, I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that one or whether they just were mistaken. But the fact is, going back to 1983, this should have never proceeded past that point because they knew, and later on DNA proved it, and the witnesses have also come clean and said that they knew that you weren't the guy. Mm-hmm. So it's really... Uh, it's it's a fucking tragedy is what it is. I like to talk about how, you know, when people are listening, most people's reaction is going to be, well, that could never happen to me. But what would you say to that? I wouldn't say that it couldn't happen because it can happen to anybody. It happened to me. I mean, a lot of times we look and we see something happen to somebody, and that's the first thing we say. That could never happen to me, but it can. Right, and that's one reason that it's it's important that we talked about your background because the fact that you came from a good family, that you were a law-abiding citizen who had never been in trouble. Uh, I think a lot of people jump to conclusions. They think, well, if this guy was convicted, he must have done something, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot I hear that from people sometimes. Mm-hmm. Even people that, you know, you think are good, you know, good-hearted people, but they have a negative preconception. That's been caused by years of press or different things. But it's important that people be educated to the fact that that's not the way it is. And it happens to so many people. A big percentage of our clients at the Innocence Project are people like you who had no prior record. Mm -hmm. They just got caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time or mistakenly arrested as you were in the first place. And then once the justice system gets you in its grasp, they just grind you up and spit you out Mm -hmm. in too many cases. When you were in prison, can you talk about what was the best And what was the worst thing that happened in those 29 years? Well, I think the saddest part for me was just being in a cell. Because 
you know, you, you learn a lot in the cell. You learn about yourself, and you learn that that cell can mint out a hell of a punishment if you're not strong. And what I mean by that, if you don't have a purpose, and my purpose was getting my life back. So what I did while I was confined was started to improve myself, learning the law, helping people that couldn't read or write, LVA, Literacy Volunteers of America. I was one of the tutors for that. Just getting involved with all type of educational and vocational skills to just keep my mind focused and try to have some type of normalcy in there and not just going with the flow, with the prison antics or just the, the common flow in prison. Gambling, running around, smoking, you know, to some people pruno, getting high. No, I wasn't doing those things. My focus was getting my life back. So I stayed in the library, read thousands of cases, wrote a couple of books, put organizations together. I made sure, kept briefs and stuff in the court's face, letting them know, hey, you know what you did, and I'm not going away, and I'm not going away. And this is where Karen and them come in, Vanessa and them come in in 2014. But I've been fighting them for years. And, you know, arguing, fighting, and they came in and seen that, well, what the hell is this? And so the Innocence Project took your case in 2014. And how did you receive the news that the Innocence Project was taking your case? Because that's got to be a big day. Yeah, that was a big day. I received that through um, Mindy Germano. She came up to see me and we talked and she told me this is what's going on. And me, I was pro se, so they wouldn't give it to me but I didn't want it to go nowhere. So when she came up, she went and made sure everything was where it's supposed to be and sealed it up. And that brings us to where we are right now today. We know that at the Innocence Project, it does take, even after we take a case, it's not like there's no magic, you know, like mm -hmm. it's still a lot of work. Yeah, it's, it's still work. hundreds of thousands of hours of legal work. Mm -hmm. And in your case, it took three years. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how this thing ended up because the justice system still had one more one more way that they really wanted to fuck you, right? And forgive my language, but I can't think of another word that fits the situation. So um, adequate. Yeah. Here it is. Three years go by, the Innocence Project is working on your case. You have now from going from having some of the worst legal representation anybody's ever had. Now you have some of the best legal representation anybody's ever had. Mm -hmm. So now you've got hope, and the day comes when finally the DNA is found, it's proven that you're innocent, but the justice system's got one more trick up its sleeve. Talk about that, because you ultimately were forced to take an Alfred plea, right? Yes. And which is not a common thing. I mean, people hear about it on the show, but only 6% of cases end up with Alfred pleas. Mm -hmm. So it's still too, too big of a number, but it's not like it's an everyday thing. It's reserved for, for very 
special circumstances. And, and the Alfred plea, in a nutshell, allows the prosecutors to maintain their conviction, if you want to call it that, right, to sort of not admit that they were wrong while you can be freed, right? That's the best part of it. Mm -hmm. And you can go out there and say I'm innocent, but in terms of the eyes of the law, it forces you to plead guilty to a lesser crime in order to be freed. Is that that's fair? Yeah, yes, yes. But what I believe is that in this situation here, they dismissed the case. They gave me the opportunity to plead under the Alpha Doctrine, but to me it was like, rather than stay and continue to go through the nonsense, because that's what it was all of them years when they knew they had to turn me loose. They wanted to still keep a conviction that they know doesn't even really exist. So they dismissed the rapes, they dismissed the robberies, and they gave me a, a kidnap. They said, plead guilty to a kidnap, and we're going to let you go home. What, what, what type of fiction is that? You've been in 29 years for this. We're dismissing that right now, the 21st, all of that. But take kidnap, and we're going to let you go home. Or else. Or else you stay in another 15 years until we decide to think about doing something. But the conviction had already been... They just dismissed it on the 21st of November. So they dismissed it only after you agreed to take the offer. Yeah, right. They dismissed everything, and then they told me this is what it's going to be. It was all dismissed. Wait, wait, wait. I don't think we're making it clear here. So on November 21st, what happened? On November 21st, I went in the courtroom, and it was a hearing. They said, well, in this hearing, you know, they just talked about the case, and we're going to dismiss it today. But you're going to plead under the Alpha Doctrine to kidnap. But the robberies and the sexual assaults are dismissed. Dismissed, now we're going to put you to plea. Because otherwise they're going to keep you Otherwise in you're going to stay in until we decide 10, 20 more years. Under the kidnapping charge. Yeah. Right, but it was never no kidnap. So the, yeah, it's surreal. What I'm saying is that they put me to plea on a fiction, on something that never happened. First they dismissed all the charges, and then a half an hour later, they tell me, plea to kidnap and you can go home. But if I'm listening to this at home, I'm saying to myself, well, if they dismissed all the charges... There's nothing. And by now, the Innocence Project had proven they, yeah. with science... Everybody was there. ...that you weren't the guy. So it's so it's so crazy like that they could just pull this kidnap out of thin air. I don't even understand that. And I'm, I, I mean, Me and I, neither. I do this for... You know, Me neither. Wow. But I'm here. But that, that's what it is right now. Kidnap. You got a kidnap. You got a kidnap from I don't know where, but we gave it to you. Like, we gave you the robbery, we gave you the sexual assault, we gave you a warrant, we gave you this. Now we're going to give you a kidnap. Right, and this is a kidnap. When you say it's a kidnap that not only you weren't involved with, but it's a kidnap that never even happened. The, 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 the warrant never happened. The, this, we proved, never happened. The escape, 
the first one never happened. You told me to leave the second one. I did. But now here's something else that we given you. But was this an actual real kidnapping of a human no. person? No. It's just to just pull them out of here. We're just going to charge you with kidnapping. You give me a kidnap, you can go home today, but we're going to give you a kidnap. So you, you, got, you still got a felony now, but it's kidnap. So did you kidnap the Lindbergh baby or Patty Hearst? Or I don't know who. They don't even tell you. I don't know who. That was just, that's the fiction. That's the fiction. And I'm here today because... I truly believe 50% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And I did not want to sit in jail another 10, 15 years fighting when they already knew from day one. It's already proven now in 2017. Prior to that, it's been proven with the Innocent Project. Everything's clear, not just through DNA, but through everything. Documents, the evidence, the, the everything, the book, the, the victims, everything. It's already been clear, but this is what we're gonna do. We gave you everything else. We're gonna give you this too. Walk with that. So, and the practical effect of that is that you now have to live with a conviction on your record. You're a convicted that felon. Never that never happened, and. You have to live with the stigma of having participated in a fictional kidnapping of a fictional person that was made up by somebody with a crazy, vindictive imagination. And the reason why they want to do that is because it means that you can't sue. Well, that's what they say. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons. And, and that's just another thing that's really so difficult to, to accept. The idea that society owes you a huge debt and they want to pull the rug out from under you instead one more time and say, we're not going to allow you to sue, but good, you know, goodbye and good luck. Or they don't even say that, but you know right. what I mean. Now, on the other hand, you got a lot of life left to live, right? You do have a beautiful family. You are able to just carry on. And you're here now, actually, with your beautiful wife. And that's an amazing story, just switching subjects for a second. So your story is actually a love story. Yes, it is. And it's remarkable in that um, I don't know if I've ever heard of anything quite like it before. Because you were married when, when this nightmare started, yeah. and you're still married yes, to the same yeah. person. Yes, yes. And you yeah. have grandchildren now? Two grandchildren, yes. And your wife, Gwendolyn, who's here in the studio, mm -hmm. yes. Gwen, who looks a little like a rock star, she waited for you the whole time you were in prison. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's just take a moment and, and, and think about that. I mean, that is, that is an extraordinary person mm -hmm. that would do that. And what, how much did that mean to you? That meant the world to me because I wasn't looking for that because I was in prison and I, I figured that, you know, I wouldn't want to see nobody suffer the way I would have to suffer. And I think that that, to me, was a form of imprisonment and I didn't want her to feel that she had to stay with me because I was confined I wanted her to go on with her life because I can understand but she chose to be there and to hold on with me and you know I'm, I'm grateful for that and it was only by the grace of God that it happened and I, I you know I respect that and I love her with all my heart that's beautiful. And tell me about your, you have a daughter? Yes, Khadijah. Yeah. 
And then she has two children. Yeah, my grandson, Trev, he's 15, the 22nd of this month, February. And my granddaughter, Jules, she just turned 8 to 17 for last month. Their mother, she's uh, an amazing woman. That's my daughter. I'm, I'm very proud of her. I very see proud. that. And that's really a blessing, you know, the fact that you had this support system while you mm -hmm. were inside. And I see when you talk about it, obviously that was a part of your survival, really. Yes, it was. Obviously, you have the support system with the Innocence Project, and you have your family, which is great, because many, many people who come out in your circumstance come out to nobody and nothing. Mm -hmm. But still, there's a lot that you're going to need to really get to where you deserve to be. People listening say, I want to do something for this guy. What, what could people do? How could they help? Well, my organization is called the Help the Needy Foundation, and that's something that I established from prison. You know, it's to put people back on track. Our mission or our motto is to be peaceful, be respectful, enjoy yourself. So it's just helping those in need, the homeless, helping the youth get back on track with vocational and educational training to try to help them build their self-esteem. You know, it's just, it helped me. I'm, the, I'm an example of that. This is what got me, and this is why I'm who I am today. And you can email me at LeroyHarris60 at yahoo.com. That's my email address. So, Leroy, before we sign off, we have a tradition here at Wrongful Conviction, which is at the end of the show, I like to turn the microphone and let you share anything else that's on your mind that you want to talk about, anything at all. Well, just, you know, being here today is an honor. And just being out and back into the hustle and bustle, having enormity once again, seeing life as I known it to be, family, friends, unleashed. You know, it's amazing. It's a, it, it ain't no better feeling after 29 years in a cage. There's no better feeling than this. It gets no better than this. You've been listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today's guest is the amazing, the one and only Leroy Harris. Leroy, thank you again for being here. Thank you. And I look forward to watching you uh, go on with your life and accomplish great things. Thank you. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project. And I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. One and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. 
American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.